Isn't it great to be able to see? This lesson, it, it would probably make a better Bible class than a sermon, but what I wanted to do is talk about uh, something that, that I keep seeing over and over and over, and the term that comes back to me is organic, organic. And I'm not talking about organic in terms of healthy food to buy at the grocery store. I'm talking about the fact that the Bible is alive and every part of it is connected to every other part. And as you're studying, it's good for you to know this. And it's especially good when you're trying to lead someone else to the truth and truths that are in God's word. So tonight we're going to look at Acts and how it talks about four different congregations that have been established and their history is in Acts. But those four congregations have letters written to them. We're talking about Philippi in chapter 16, Thessalonica in chapter 17, Corinth in chapter 18, and in chapter 19, Ephesus. Those four congregations were established, and the history is written in Acts, but we've also got letters written to those churches. So let's, let's take a look at this connection that we've got here between Acts and these letters. Chapter 16, we get... We get to Philippi down in verse 11 and 12. It says, putting out to sea from Troas. Who was from Troas? No, not Troas, Tarsus. Paul was from Tarsus. That's where it was. We ran a straight course to Samothrace, and on the day following to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia, a Roman colony, and we were staying in this city for some days. Now, why did they go to Macedonia did you read the previous verses? Do you remember that? They, he, Paul saw a vision. God gave him a vision of someone from Macedonia saying, come over and help us. That's why they're in Macedonia, and Philippi is the first place to be at Macedonia. So it says in verse 13, on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to a riverside where we were supposing that there would be a place of prayer. We sat down, began speaking to the women who had assembled. Women had assembled. A woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple fabrics, a worshiper of God, was listening, and the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. I like that. She was listening. In other words, her heart was attuned towards what Paul was saying. I believe that's what that means. And because she was doing that, God opened her heart, wanted her to see it. Not everybody wants to see Remember when Jesus taught in parables and the, the apostles asked, why do you speak to them in parables? And he said, because basically some want to see it and some don't. Lydia wanted to see it. He'd been called to Macedonia, I believe, because of this woman and because of the jailer that you read about in the latter part of the 16th chapter. At any rate, it says in verse 15, when she and her household had been baptized, she urged us saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come into my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. So how great is that? Went to the city of Philippi, immediately found some ladies there studying, praying, and Paul preached the gospel to them. Lydia and her whole household were brought to Christ. She was baptized, put on Christ right there. And then there's a little stir up a little later on about uh, a girl who was divining and Paul and Silas were thrown in jail. You ever thought you might be thrown in jail for preaching the gospel? That's what happened here. It's not the last time. We'll talk about that again, too. But it says about midnight, verse 25, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns of praise to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. There's that, that idea again, 
Lydia was listening. The Lord opened her heart. These prisoners are listening. And it says, suddenly there came a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's chains were unfastened. Then the jailer awoke, saw that the prison doors opened. He drew his sword, was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried out with a loud voice saying, do not harm yourself. We are all here. Words that the jailer, I'm sure, did not expect to hear and was overjoyed to hear. He called for lights and he rushed in trembling. This is a jailer, a jailer in a heathen pagan city. You don't put a sissy in charge of the jail in a heathen pagan city. I am confident that this jailer was a pretty tough guy. But he comes in trembling because of what's happened. An earthquake, the chains are all taken. He knows the possibility of these guys fleeing is right there, and yet nobody's gone, and he's got to be asking himself, what in the world is happening? He fell down before Paul and Silas, and after he brought them out, he brings them out of prison. He was afraid everybody was gone, but he sees nobody is, so he brings them out of the prison. And he says, sirs, what must I do to be saved? This man's life was impacted by what had just happened. And they said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him together with all who were in the house. And he took them that very hour of the night and washed their wounds. And immediately what happened? Well, he was baptized. That's the plan. That's the pattern you see throughout the book of Acts. He was baptized. He and his whole household, just like Lydia. Lydia and her whole household obeyed the gospel. The jailer and his whole household obeyed the gospel. Well, keep a finger in Acts because we're, Lord willing, we'll come back to it. But go to Philippians chapter 1. So these two families have obeyed the gospel. We basically have a church started or the beginnings of a church in the city of Philippi. But when Paul writes this letter to the church at Philippi, this is what he says. Verse 1, Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who were in Philippi, including, including what? Overseers and deacons. Where did they come from? Did they ship them in from some other town? This is a faithful couple. Lydia and the jailer are evidently spreading the gospel. Now, I know this is, this is speculation because there, there's no history of that. But somehow, some way, these two families that we're told about in Acts have grown. The church has grown to the point where they not only have a number of saints assembling to be called a church, but they have mature saints who are serving as elders or bishops, overseers, same thing, and deacons. This is amazing to me that the gospel has gone into this town and flourished so well. So encouraging to see this going on. But look a little farther on down in the text. Verse 3. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy in every prayer for you all in view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. We'll find out in chapter 4 what that means is they're, they're financing his work. They're helping pay for his travel and his upkeep. They're taking care of Paul. He's blessed them and they are blessing him. Uh, muzzle not the ox when what's happening when the ox is treading out the corn, that means if that ox is working and making use some corn to, to make cornbread out of, I don't know if they made cornbread, 
But man, they should have. But when the ox is doing that, you feed him. You let him eat some of that corn, and that's what's going on here. It's, it's a reciprocal thing. And Paul is thanking them on his every memory of them. And he says this down in verse 12. I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel, so that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole praetorian guard and to everyone else. Now hold on here. Is he talking about the imprisonment that he endured in Philippi? He's not talking about that imprisonment. He's been imprisoned again. And who has heard the gospel because of that imprisonment? The whole praetorian guard. Who were the praetorian guard? Those were the elite troops of Caesar. The praetorian guard. Those were the the uppity ups in the military. And he says the whole praetorian guard has heard the gospel. Why? Because he was in prison. How did the church get its start in Philippi? Well, in part because Paul and Silas were in prison. If it hadn't been for them being thrown in jail, that jailer might never have heard. Now me, I would have been complaining. This isn't the way it's supposed to happen. I'm preaching the gospel. God's supposed to take care of me. Everything's supposed to go smoothly. I'm not supposed to be mistreated and abused. I hope I wouldn't really think like that. But I'm small enough to think I just might. But Paul is saying, thank God. Things have turned out for the furtherance of what? The furtherance of the gospel. Not the furtherance of me and my comfort, but the furtherance of the gospel. And that's what was first and foremost in his mind. So he's saying, because of that, the whole praetorian God guard now knows about God. So it worked out in Philippi. They weren't probably hoping to be arrested in Philippi, but they were, and it turned out great. I'm sure he wasn't planning on being arrested in this particular case, but he was, and it's turned out great. So when you think about the church in Philippi, sometimes things that don't look good really are good if we just let the Lord work through them. And you see the connection between Acts and this letter? And we're not going to go any farther with Philippians because we've got three other congregations I want to talk about. Let's go back to Acts and look at chapter 17. Not a, not a big chunk of writing about Thessalonica in Acts, but, but enough so we can get a flavor of what that congregation's beginning was like. When they traveled through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And according to Paul's custom, he went to them and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and giving evidence that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead, saying, this Jesus whom I am proclaiming to you is the Christ. Now I'll ask this once again. I've asked it in other classes. What scriptures would he have been using? Old Testament. There wasn't a New Testament at this point yet in the sense of a nice printed bound translation of the New Testament. It was still coming to be. As a matter of fact, what we're reading would become part of what we call the New Testament. So when he was reasoning with them through the scriptures, he was reasoning from the old covenant scriptures, the prophets, the Psalms, the law. Those were the works that he was using to explain that Jesus was the Messiah. And when we read this, it should click in our head. Oh, well, I can do that too. 
You can go back and research the old scriptures and come up with evidence, a line of reasoning that you can use to prove to people that Jesus was the Christ. It's very impressive when they see all the fulfillment of the messianic prophecies that were given throughout the centuries. And that's what he's doing here in Philippi. But it says, verse 4, Some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, along with a large number of the God-fearing Greeks and a number of the leading women. But the Jews, becoming jealous and taking along some wicked men from the marketplace, formed a mob and set the city in an uproar, and attacking the house of Jason, they were seeking to bring them out to the people. When they did not find them, they began dragging Jason and some of the brethren before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have upset the world have come here also. Wait a minute, these guys who've done what? They've upset the world. What did they do to upset the world? They told people about Jesus. What criminals? What horrible people? Telling people the truth about the Son of God who came and was crucified and rose from the dead on the third day, just like he said he would. This is what they've done. If you ever doubt the power of the message of the gospel, go back and read the 17th chapter of Acts. And see what happened when the gospel was preached in Thessalonica and how these guys were accused of upsetting the whole world. I would like, I would like to hear that people around here are complaining about us because we're upsetting them by means of preaching the truth. I hope you understand what I mean. I'm not trying to set out to upset anybody. But if there are people who believe lies and they hear what we're saying and it bothers them, good. Good. If I believe a lie, I want you to upset me with the truth. Will you do that for me? Will you do that for me? I know you think, oh, you'll never believe a lie, Marty. Not you. Well, hey, if I ever do, truth is all I need. So it says, verse 7, Jason has welcomed them. And they all act contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And they stirred up the crowd, and the city authorities heard these things. And when they had received a pledge from Jason and the others, they released them. And so they they left there. So the church in Thessalonica began, but it began with difficulty and hardship and persecution. The Jews got wicked men to go with them to persecute these folks who were believing in Christ. And that's exactly what you see reflected In the letters Paul writes to the church at Thessalonica, he writes two that we have. Let's go to the second one, 2 Thessalonians. Just read a little bit from the first chapter here. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 3. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brethren, as is only fitting because your faith is greatly enlarged and the love of each one of you toward one another grows ever greater. Isn't that a great thing to say about a church? Your love is enlarged and your love just keeps growing. Your love for one another just keeps growing. You ever wonder why that was? You think maybe persecution would have had anything to do with that? He doesn't say, but I have to wonder. Therefore, verse 4, we ourselves speak proudly of you among the churches of God for your perseverance and faith in the midst of all your persecutions and afflictions which you endure. This is a plain indication of God's righteous judgment so that you will be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which indeed you are suffering. 
For after all, it's only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to give relief to you who are afflicted and to us as well when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. Paul writes to the church and he says, you've, you've endured a lot and we are proud of you and I'm bragging about you to other congregations and they know about your faith and your fervency and your, your endurance. But don't you worry about those who are persecuting you, he says. God is a God of justice and he will call them on the carpet all in good time is essentially what he says. And with these, with, and you read the first letter, the first part of the, the first chapter of the first letter, you see the same thing, this idea of persecution being brought up and the sufferings that the church was enduring. So what we're seeing is that this church is growing internally. I don't know what the numbers were. I, I find that an interesting thing about the New Testament. We don't know what size any of the congregations were. Can you name the size of any congregation? I think that's fascinating that God would not tell us those numbers. I think we would be misled by the numbers. How many Israelites that came out of Egypt actually went into the promised land? Two. Can you name them? Joshua and Caleb. How many came out of Egypt? There were over 600,000 fighting men. But only two of those went into the promised land. Not even Moses. God's not concerned with numbers. He's concerned with holiness, righteousness, faithfulness. How many died when the doors of the ark were closed? Everybody except who? Except the ones on the ark. Well, there's a message about the church right there. Mike was talking about this morning. The, the precious nature of the church and how we value the church. How much would you value the ark if you're standing outside and it's starting to rain? Man, let me on. Don't make that decision too late. Good to see you guys out tonight. You care about the church. You would have been on the ark. You would have been one of those, I'm sure, whose love was growing even in the midst of persecution. And that's what we're hearing about the church at Thessalonica. Back to Acts. Back to Acts. Chapter 18. We study these letters. We study 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, Thessalonians, Philippi. We, we study these, and we should all the time be studying these. But I want you to know how these congregations got started. Acts chapter 18. After these things, he left Athens and went to Corinth. He found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, having recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. How'd you like that? You're Jewish. You live in Rome. Making a good, good life there. Caesar says, all right, all you Jews, get out of here. Wow. So here they are in Corinth. But what we just learned from Philippi, the things that we might think are bad sometimes turn out for the furtherance of the gospel. You see that here at Corinth as well. It says in verse 3, because Paul was of the same trade, he stayed with them. And they were working, for by trade they were tent makers. And he was reasoning in the synagogue every Sabbath and trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. But when Silas and Timothy came down from Macedonia, what congregations in Macedonia? Philippi. The church of Philippi is in Macedonia. We just read that. You remember, don't you? 
Don't get too comfortable in those folding chairs. Paul began devoting himself completely to the word, solemnly testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ. But when they resisted and blasphemed, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am clean. From now on I will go to the Gentiles. Whoa. When Paul wrote to the church at Rome, he said in the first chapter, verse 16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. Why did he say that? It's the power of God for salvation. To who? To the Jew first. But also to the Greek. Amen. (laughs) To the Gentiles. That's who we are. I don't know if anybody here is Jewish or not, but if you're not Jewish, to the Jew first, but also to the Greek, to the Gentile, to the rest of the world. And so Paul, after these Jews blaspheme and renounce the gospel, he's doing what Jesus said to do. What do you do with your holy things? Well, you don't give them to the dogs. You don't cast your pearls before swine. So he's going to the Gentiles. By the way, when they say, Or when he says, your blood be on your own heads, what's that make you think of? Do you remember when Jesus was on trial? Pilate was trying to let Jesus go, trying to set Jesus free. He didn't find anything wrong with the man. But the crowd cried out, crucify him, crucify him. His blood be on us and what else? And on our children just unthinkable can you imagine waking up in eternity and that be something that you never repented of wow at any rate here's paul again facing jews and saying your blood be on your own heads he shakes his garments and he leaves he left there and went to the house of a man named titius justus verse 7 of chapter 18 a worshiper of God in whose house was next to the synagogue, Crispus, the leader of the synagogue, believed in the Lord with all his household, and many of the Corinthians, when they heard, were believing and being baptized. So why does he leave the synagogue? He leaves the synagogue because so many Jews were blaspheming and rejecting what he has to say. But one man does believe, and who is that? Crispus. And who is he? He's the leader of the synagogue. Isn't that something? goes on to say, the Lord said to Paul in a night by a vision, do not be afraid any longer, but go on speaking and do not be silent for I am with you. Number one, I'm with you and no man will attack you in order to harm you for I've got a lot of people in this town. Wow. What a message God got from God or Paul got from God. I am with you. Don't be afraid. And I got a lot of people in this town. So don't you worry about anything. This is after he's basically had to leave the synagogue because of the rejection of the gospel. But Crispus, Crispus believed, the leader of the synagogue believed. So it says, verse 11, he settled there for a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. But when Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, The Jews with one accord rose up against Paul and brought him before the judgment seat, saying, This man persuades men to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, If it were a matter of wrong or of vicious crime, old Jews, it would be reasonable for me to put up with you. 
But if there are questions about words and names and your own law, look to it yourselves. I'm unwilling to be a judge of these matters. And he drove them away from the judgment seat. This is a Gentile ruler. You Jews, get out of here. I'm not going to argue with you about this junk. So it says, they took hold of Sosthenes. And who's Sosthenes? He's apparently the new leader of the synagogue. Who was the old leader of the synagogue? Crispus. Why isn't he the leader of the synagogue anymore? He believes in Jesus. <laughs> so he's, apparently, he's been pushed out of his place or he quit his place. He's not leader of the synagogue anymore. Who is Sosthenes is leader of the synagogue? And they began beating him in front of the judgment seat. But Gallio was not concerned about any of these things. And I, you don't have to raise your hand. But is there part of you that when you read about Sosthenes being beaten, you go, yeah, hit him again. <laughs> I know you're probably grinning inside. You don't want anybody to know. But that's kind of the way we, we feel sometimes because we like this, this idea of justice. If you're going to reject the Son of God and reject the, the preaching of the gospel of the Son of God, you're going to get a worse beating later. You, you need to get a beating now. And apparently that beating did something because when you go to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, look what we're reading here. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Paul called as an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God and, and, and who? Sosthenes. Wait a minute. Is that the same Sosthenes that Luke wrote about in Acts? How could it not be? Why would Paul write this letter to the church at Corinth and in the very beginning say, me and Sosthenes, if it wasn't the Sosthenes that they knew? So Crispus, the leader of the synagogue, eventually or, or apparently the only convert at first, but Paul was there for a year and a half preaching the gospel. And Sosthenes was somehow later the ruler of the synagogue. They take Paul to court over these things that he is claiming, they say. And they are rejected. The Jews are thrown out of court and Sosthenes is beaten. So now Sosthenes is apparently a brother in Christ. And when you read this letter to the church at Corinth, by the way, this is actually 2 Corinthians. When, he, when you get to chapter 5, Paul mentions a previous letter. So there was a letter prior to this one. We don't know anything about it except that he, he, in chapter 5 he says something about something he wrote in the previous letter. But don't worry about the fact that we don't have it. If God wanted us to have it, we'd have it, and, and everything would be kosher. Could I say that? Could I mean? But when you read this letter, you're going to see all kinds of things happening that I don't believe Jewish people would have been involved in. Because the Jewish people had the law. And there's a lot of things going on that were contrary to the law that I don't think Jews would have been so much involved in. When you get to chapter uh, 6, for example, Paul writes this, chapter 6, verse 9. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Well, Jews would have known these things that he's about to say, but Gentiles wouldn't. Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Not any self-respecting Jew 
who knew anything about the law of God would have ever said that people who practice those things, they'll be fine, but Gentiles would have. What's that tell you about the makeup of this church? It had to be mostly Gentiles. And when you read about the things that this letter was written to correct, it's like, wow, these people didn't know anything, did they? No. They hardly knew anything. As a matter of fact, the things they did know were probably working against them because they probably knew a lot of bad stuff. Have you ever had to teach yourself out of something that was a wrong or bad idea? Have you ever had need somebody to help you get clear of some stupid thing that you were taught in the past? If you haven't, boy, you're a weird bird. Because <laughs> everybody goes through that. But I think that's what's happening in Corinth. And that's why there's not a passage in this letter, or in the second letter, as we call it, that says, all you faithful Christians, get out of Dodge. Leave that church. As a matter of fact, I don't find a passage anywhere in the New Testament that instructs a Christian to leave the congregations he's at. There are some that say, mark those who walk contrary to the things you've been taught, but but no congregation is told, hey, if you're faithful, leave this church. And so Paul writes this letter through the inspiration of the Spirit to a congregation that's all messed up. But if you go back and read about how that congregation got started, well, no wonder they were messed up. The Jews wouldn't accept the gospel, so he went to the Gentiles And he's bringing people out of the world, in the world of the first century. The world of the Roman gods, the world of the Greek gods, the world of craziness and insanity. Where people built temples and in those temples were basically prostitutes and that's how you worshipped. And we think televangelists are weird. Well, they are. But this was a crazy time, godless time, godless places. And yet the gospel is going forth and it's prospering. And so we're, we're seeing all these wondrous things happening because the gospel is being preached. I, I don't want to take a whole lot of time with Ephesus, but I, I do want you to know, if you go back and read the 19th chapter, you see how the church at Ephesus got started. I didn't think it would take this long to get through this material, but I, I'm slow. The church in Ephesus starts with the first seven verses. And what it is, is 12 guys who've been baptized into John's baptism, John the Baptist. And so Paul asks, weren't you ever baptized in the name of Christ? Do you know anything about the Holy Spirit? And it says in verse 3, into what then were you baptized? And they said, into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with a baptism of repentance, telling people to believe in him who was coming after him, that is in Jesus. When they heard this, what they do? They were baptized In the name of the Lord Jesus. So that's how this congregation got started. There was a question about their baptism. And when Paul found out that they'd been baptized under John's baptism, he didn't go, oh, that's good enough. You're all right. You you got a legitimate baptism. Don't worry about baptism. It's no big deal anyway. He said, no, you need to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. So then you go to the letter that was written to the church at Ephesus. And I just want to show you this one thing because you hear this so much if you're talking to people who were in most denominations today, they'll go to chapter 2 and they will point you to verses 8 and 9 of Ephesus, chapter, or Ephesians rather, chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it's a gift of God. Amen? Amen. Amen. That's absolutely true. But what's the context of that truth? The context is Acts chapter 19. Paul is writing to people who've already obeyed the gospel through baptism and he's giving them the the real story about salvation. 
Verse 9, it's not as a result of works. And they would have understood by what he's... Well, it's not, it's not a result of working by being baptized. That's what Mike mentioned this morning. A lot of people get the idea that baptism is a work. Baptism is the most non-working thing you could ever submit to because you have to submit to it. You don't baptize yourself. The only two people working during a baptism is God and whoever's lowering you into the water and bringing you up. You're not working if you're the one being baptized. These people knew that. By the way, when Paul gets to chapter 4, what we call chapter 4 of this letter, what's he going to say about baptism? He's going to say there's one baptism. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. Well, what baptism would that be if it's not the one in Jesus' name that he practiced with them in Acts chapter 19? You see how this works? Acts chapter 19 clears up a lot of questions about Ephesians 2. It, it's just the way the whole Bible is. So I, I just wanted to give you these things tonight to encourage you that what God has given us in the Word is the finest tool. There is no better tool for learning about Him and about His history and about His church and about His Son and about His Spirit. You want to know anything about God, this is the place to start. Yes, you can look at the creation. I, I tell people that all the time. Look at the creation to see the wondrous nature of God, to see His genius to see the, the fact that he creates a planet and a system that just keeps going in spite of everything we, we throw at it. The world just keeps going, keeps spinning. The sun keeps shining. And, and I remember, you know, there's always something. Back, how many of you remember the, the, the fear of acid rain? Acid rain, acid rain, oh no. And, and I'd go outside and, and people, oh, don't go outside. It's acid rain. It's, the rain's falling through that stuff that the factories make, and it's going to going to dissolve you away. And you never hear anything about acid rain anymore. It's always some new thing. But you go back to Genesis, chapters 8 and 9, where the flood is finishing up, and, and God is saying at the end of chapter 8, listen. Well, he didn't say listen. But when God talks, you better listen. <laughs> he said, from now on, harvest is going to continue. Reaping time is going to continue. Planting time, summer, winter, spring. It's all going to continue. I'm going to keep this cycle going until I return, basically, is what he says in Genesis chapter 8. In Genesis chapter 8. So everything's continuing, and Peter will say that later, that everything's being kept in, in preservation by the word of God until he returns. So until he returns, th this book, this book is the key to understanding a lot of things that we may not understand. It's all about God. And this happens to be the word that he gave us. Amen? All right, enough about that. Let's, let's consider the invitation song. If there's anybody here that needs to do what these folks did in Acts, that is obey the gospel. If you need the prayers of the church, we want to help you. We've got a nice widened aisle now. And you can come down. You can weave yourself through the chairs. Just come on down while we sing this song of invitation for you. The bell is tolling. The bell is tolling. You better repent. <laughs>